Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of Galatians is a gospel clarifying letter that unpacks the richness and completeness of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. It clearly defines what the gospel is and is not for its readers. It helps us realize the depths of God's love for us in a life of relationship and obedience to Him in His power. Please continue listening for today's message. Morning Church. This morning's reading is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 1. Example of Hagar and Sarah. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son? For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God bless the reading of his word. Thank you so much. It's a difficult text. You want to stay and preach it. Um, (laughs) I am looking forward to being here. I have been on leave for two and a half weeks, which was amazing. Um, And I'm coming back ready to get into Galatians. It's been so good. This venue is like, if if I'd said to Nathan, what does heaven look like? This is what he would have described. Like He'd be like, fire. He comes home from school singing the fire song every time. He make police cars. He makes us go to the M3 by our house. I think it's the M3, M5, whichever one goes towards Weinberg, M3. And then he makes us go to the traffic light and stand there until police cars come by. We can spend hours there. We're not allowed to leave until a police car comes by. So he was super happy. He was so stoked that when he needed to leave, he crawled under the chairs here and held on. And Laura had to pull him out by his feet because he hadn't had a turn in the helicopter. So anyways, and he can't come. That's the devastating thing. He's too young. He's too young. There's an analogy in that, don't be too young for the kingdom of heaven. No, I don't know. Okay, getting back to the Bible. Okay, where are we? We're in Galatians. It is good to be in Galatians. And um, Paul last week was, was kind of arguing against this idea that you have to add the law or Torah observance. Well, throughout the whole book of Galatians, Paul's been arguing with this idea that you have to add 
Torah observance and distinctives of the Jewish faith like circumcision to the gospel, to be the true sons and daughters of God. And, and Paul throughout this whole book has been contending against that idea, saying, no, there's, there's so much beauty in the gospel and, 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 and why would you wanna add to the finished work of Jesus? And it's been a lovely, incredible journey for us as a community as we freshly lived under the grace of the gospel and as Paul contended last week, he, he went more personally and he, he just shared his heart and his love for the, the Galatians and he, he contended for this out of a relational space. And um, this week he's going to shift to, to really trying to unpick this idea that you can add law and grace together for one last time. And he's gonna kind of nail the... the, the the nail into the coffin like one last time and really say, this is done, I've, I've argued this. And then he's gonna move on. And, and as he tries to finish off this arguing against this idea that you can add law to grace, is he's going to turn to Christian freedom and this idea of Christian freedom and what does it mean to be free in Christ? And he's gonna kind of, we're gonna look at that for the next three-ish weeks. And then he's gonna look out how do we live out this freedom in the spirit. And, and re, so really, as he tries to finish up or wrap up his argument against his opponents in the Galatians church, he's turning his attention to freedom. And I wonder what it is that you think of when I say freedom. I wonder what image comes to mind when I, when I say freedom. For me, the image that comes to mind is kind of like coming out of a dense forest and into this beautiful field with a vista and your eyes kind of adjust and then you look at the beauty before you and it's, it's just beautiful. And because I'm a parent of young kids, I'm alone and there's quiet. It's just quiet. That for me is freedom. And as I look out in front of me, it's almost like that sense of possibility. Anything is possible. I am free. And I think largely our culture has a view of freedom that looks like that. It's that, that freedom, the, the, to be truly free is to be able to stand as an individual, look forward and go, there is nothing restraining me. There is nothing restricting me from becoming who I wanna be, when I wanna be it and how I wanna be it. I am free as long as restriction and um, burden is removed, I can be truly free. And there's a sense of freedom being the removal of restraint and obligation. But yet we also see with this idea of freedom in our culture, this idea of freedom being free from restraint and responsibility grows. We're also seeing alongside it growing a culture that is increasingly fearful and anxious and confused. And so we, we think we have this idea of freedom and as we pursue this idea of freedom, it seems to be doing anything but producing freedom in us. I don't know how it is that you would do describe freedom. But as Paul starts to speak to Christian freedom this morning, we're gonna see that, that he offers a different kind of freedom that truly leads to freedom and alleviation of fear and anxiety. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, I hope this morning is an encouraging message for you. Because so often you can think that Christian faith is about a moral standard. It's a very simple equation that is a moral standard if you live up to that moral standard, you are accepted and worthy of God. And what we're gonna see this morning is that that is not the Christian message at all. And if that's the message that you've been told, I think God wants to speak to you gently this morning and reveal to you what the true Christian message is. And as Paul contends for Christian freedom, as he moves towards Christian, uh, teaching us about Christian freedom, what he's gonna do is he's gonna go back into Jewish history and he's gonna do that by, by contrasting 
quite a lot different things between freedom and, and bondage. And he's going to do that by looking at two mothers, two covenants, and two children. That's where we're going this morning. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We enjoy you. You are our great rescuer and we know you and you've poured out your spirit into our lives and you have brought about incredible freedom. And Father, we are so thankful for your finished work which calls us together on a morning like this to celebrate you and worship you and enjoy you and all your people. And Father, we don't come to empty words and and good ideas. We come to a living God, creator of the universe, And I pray, Father, that as you speak to us this morning about freedom, that wherever we are in our journey with you, whatever bondage we've walked in with, whatever slavery we've come in under, that you would bring freedom, Father. We don't just come here wanting to hear good things, but be transformed. And so, Father, would we leave here freer and lighter and more joyful as your truths wash over us and speak to us and your spirit is poured out. Change us, we pray. Amen. So let's look at that first one, the the contrast between two mothers. And as I said, Paul is shifting gears. So he's been very pastoral. He's been very relational. Um, Jeff unpacked that last week. and, And just before the text we pick up this morning, he says this in verse 19, my little children, whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This lovely pastoral moment where Paul goes, I love you, church. I love you, Galatians. All my words, whether they're gentle or harsh, strong, soft, I'm trying everything. And it's birthed out of a place of a deep love and compassion for you. And I want nothing for you but for you to know the love of Christ and to be formed by the love of Christ into Christ-likeness. And he goes, I'm I'm confused. And any frustration, any tone of harshness you pick up in me is because I'm perplexed. I'm struggling to understand how this message of adding the law to the gospel of grace, how adding Jewish distinctives to that is starting to take root in this church. I'm very confused about it. How is this even possible? And he goes on in verse 21 where we pick up to show what is perplexing him. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And Paul now shifts from the relational engagement with them into a, a kind of wanting to unpick the argument a bit and go, help me understand what it is about this argument that is appealing to you And help me understand how their argument can appeal to you at all, those who know the gospel and believe the gospel. And he goes, you know what, I think those of you who are tempted to listen to this teaching and take on the law, you must be really confused. You must not understand what the scriptures actually teach about the law. You must not be understanding the implications of what it would look like to step under the law and be under the law. And so I'm gonna show you I'm gonna teach you what the scriptures say and help you understand the full implications of what your life would look like if you embrace this teaching of these Judaizers who have crept into the Galatians church. And then we read in verse 22, for it is written, he's turning to the scriptures and to Jewish history, he goes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman 
and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And Paul now takes the argument back to Abraham, back into Jewish history. And he did this in chapter three, I don't know if you remember, where the the Jewish opponents who were, were trying to say add law had said there's this Mosaic covenant that kind of helps us make sense of the promise of God. And, and actually, the, our history with God kind of starts there, where God descends on Mount Sinai and gives out the Mosaic covenant. And back in chapter three, Paul argues and he says, no, we don't just start here. Our history doesn't start here. Our history starts with Abraham the father of our faith. And Paul here again is going back to Abraham and saying, remember, our faith starts with Abraham and if we're gonna make sense of this argument and see what God's heart is in this, we need to start with the promise that he made to Abraham. And he goes back to Abraham. And in a few verse, in a few sentences here, Paul basically summarizes Genesis chapter 16, 17 and 21. So there's a lot that he's captured in these three sentences. And he's saying, remember that Abraham had two sons from two different mothers and that these sons were born in two very different ways. And the story goes like this, is that God moves towards Abraham. Abraham is an undeserving pagan worshiper of the moon, undeserving of God. There is nothing in Abraham that drew God towards him, but God because he delighted to reveal himself to Abraham, moves towards Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm I'm going to cause you to give birth to a son and you and Sarah are going to father a nation. And I will be the God of that nation and they will be my people and I will pour out my spirit upon them and they will be a blessing to all nations. Credible promise to Abraham. You didn't deserve it, you didn't see it coming. God just moved towards him in kindness. There's a big catch to that promise. Sarah was in her 90s and had been barren her entire life. And Abraham was in his 100th year when this promise comes to him. Sarah actually laughed. How is it possible? And in that laughing, the promise probably touched a nerve of a lifetime of shame, of not being able to give Abraham an heir. And God moves towards him and says, I promise that I will birth a nation out of you. And they believed him. And you read in Hebrews that that their belief, their trust in, in God's promise was what made them right with God, what made them be able to stand in the presence of God. Hebrews said that it was their faith that God could do what He said He would do was a credit to them as righteousness. God made a promise, they believed Him. They said, you are worthy of my presence to Abraham. But the years go on and pass by and the promise hasn't come to pass. Time passes between God making the promise and, and they're still waiting. And they're waiting for this child to be born. And uh, La and I took four years to fall pregnant. I know people have taken longer, but there's an anguish in those four years where every month you wonder, is this the month? Is this the month? And you can imagine Sarah, a lifetime of struggling to fall pregnant, carrying the shame of that, month in and month out going, is this the month God fulfills His promise? Is this the month? 
And eventually she reaches, her and Abraham reach a point of weakness. And they start to mistrust and get confused and they start to question the goodness of God. And they go, maybe, maybe God meant that we must make this happen. Maybe God, we got to figure out how this works. And in an act of, of faithlessness, they try to fulfill the promises of God in their life. And Sarah takes Hagar, who's one of her servants, and gives, them to, gives her to Abraham as a wife. And Abraham takes her as a wife and gives birth to his son, Ishmael. What Paul says at this moment is in verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. This is a low moment for Abraham and Sarah. This is not a moment of faithfulness. This is a moment of faithlessness where they try to bring about the purposes and promises of God in their life by their actions and their efforts. And while polygamy happens in the Bible, it's not endorsed or encouraged by God. And so often in the Old Testament stories, it's the start of human effort in rebellion to faith and trust in God's promise. And Hagar pays a price and Abraham and Sarah pay a price for this moment. And if you're here looking into the claims of Jesus, you've been brought along. I love these moments in the Bible where I get to highlight the reality that the Bible is not a book full of moral stories that promote these moral people who stand forth as moral examples for all of us to follow. That's not the Bible. The Bible is actually full of humans like you and me who make massive mistakes, get it wrong, and yet there is a kind and loving God who still fulfills His promises despite us. That's the story of the Bible. And when Paul says that this child, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. In the theology of Paul, the flesh represents human effort, desires and principles acted out in sin, faithlessness, rebellion to God. God, I want it now, it's not happening, I'm gonna act. God, you, you have failed me, I'm going to make it happen. God, I don't need you, I can do this. And that's where Abraham and Sarah find themselves in this moment. But on the other hand, there is the son who is eventually born to Sarah, Isaac. And this child is born of promise. So you have Ishmael, whose mother is Hagar, and the mother Hagar is in slavery. She's, she's a servant. And a mother in slavery can only give birth to a child in bondage, in slavery. And so you have Hagar in slavery, normal human processes and faithlessness gives birth to Ishmael. And then you have on the other side, Isaac born of the promise of God by the spirit of God into freedom. You can see it on the table there. So what Paul is doing is he's going back into Jewish history. He's going back to the father of their faith, Abraham. And he's saying that there are these two mothers that existed, one who was a slave and one who was free. And that a slave woman can only give birth to a child in slavery. 
But yet there was this woman who gave birth to a child born of promise and spirit into freedom. This is Jewish history. This is what happened with Abraham. And it's tricky and it's difficult. And I find myself quite jarred with the language of slavery. I think I'm jarred by it for two reasons. One, that there is a, we've lived, in a, we've lived through a slavery that is very different to the slavery that's been spoken of here in the Old Testament, which was far more around servanthood and being a servant of. They were treated well and differently. And God always wanted to liberate the slave and the captive. And I can't go into slavery and what the Bible says about slavery now, but if that's something that jars you, there will be a resource in our mailer on the biblical view on slavery. But I came to realize that the reason it is jarring to me is because Paul wants it to be jarring. He's not actually contending for whether this was right or wrong. That's done in other parts of the Bible. And if we were preaching on this story, we would get into that. And actually God deals incredibly kindly with Hagar and births an entire nation out of Israel. God's dealings with Hagar is kind, even though Sarah's dealings with Hagar is harsh. But Paul is actually trying to create this distinction. He's going, we all live in the reality in a world where there are free people and there are enslaved people. There are such categories as freedom and, there's, and bondage. And he's using the history of, of his people, he's using the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar to highlight the reality of slavery and bondage for a very real purpose. He's got a plan behind this. And his plan and his purpose is to speak to, the two, is to, speak to two covenants at play in this conversation that he's having with the Galatians church. Look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And what Paul is doing here is he's going, this is our history. And he's not making, he's not talking about what he thinks about his, the, the history. He's going, this is our history. And there was a slave woman and she gave birth to a slave child. And there was this free woman and she gave birth to a free child through a miracle of God's spirit versus the act of human flesh. And he goes, now I wanna take that story that is and I'm gonna use it as an allegory to help us make sense of what's actually going on. So what he's gonna do is he's gonna try to bring to bear deep spiritual truths on the Galatians church and the Jewish proponents of adding law to grace, he's gonna bring those to bear by using this story that is jarring because his whole heart is to speak to the freedom that we have in Christ. And as he uses this allegory, what he's doing is he's going, I'm gonna use imagery, I'm gonna use people, and I'm gonna use narratives that are familiar to you to really try and help you understand what it is that you are, what, what it is you're being taught and invited to step into. And then he goes on to do that, to apply Jewish history to the conversation in Galatians through an allegory. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her child. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear 
break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And that quote, that song is taken from Isaiah 54 verse one, quoting Isaiah speaking of the people um, in exile, the Israelites in exile. Now all the commentators say that this is incredibly complicated piece of scripture, but that its point is fairly simple. That Paul is trying to draw a line between Jewish history and this free woman versus the slave woman and the two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of law. And that he's using their story to help us make sense of what's really going on with these laws and to help the, the Galatians see what it is that they're missing if they're, if they're potentially being swept up by this teaching of the Jews that have come to them. And what he does is he very simply says, Hagar, in my allegory, Hagar is like the law at Mount Sinai, given at Mount Sinai. And therefore, anyone birthed or born of the law is born into slavery. Versus anyone born of the free woman is born into freedom. He's trying to carry on this difference between the law and the gospel. And remember in chapter three that Paul did this at length because the, the Jewish opponents of his were telling the Galatians that yes, there is the Abrahamic promise that came to Abraham, but a few years later, many years later, there was the law that came at Mount Sinai and these things go together. The law helps us make sense of the promise. And without the law, there's no inheriting of the promise and being the true people of God. Therefore, you have to do Torah observance and you have to take on Jewish distinctives like circumcision to be the true sons and daughters of God. And they thought that this wasn't, these weren't two separate covenants, this was just one covenant and the, the law kind of brought color to the first covenant. And back in chapter three, Paul argues and contends and says, no, 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 they are two separate covenants. They're not one covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant of promise. And then there's the Mosaic covenant and they serve two completely different purposes. And he contends back then that the Mosaic covenant and its purpose was to be a guardian. And the only thing that the, the covenant could do, the covenant of law could do is be a guardian that reveals to us our sin. And in many ways, we end up enslaved to sin as it points out the high standard and holiness of God and how far short we fall and how impossible it is, even when God tells us what it is we need to do, how impossible it is to do it. And actually Paul contends back then that for Jewish people, the gift of the law was that it made them realize how much they needed a savior, how much they needed rescue which is why it is so beautiful and why it is that Paul through the whole book of Galatians has been contending for the gospel. He's saying the law was not the fulfillment of God's promise. The law was not God's solution to the promise. The law was not, God did not say, hey, I've promised that I will birth a nation, pour out my spirit and that you will be my people and you will be my God if you just do these things. No. The law, I mean the promise, always saw the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus. And that Jesus, God himself, once the law had done its work and revealed to all humanity that it is impossible, 
to make ourselves right with God. It is impossible to pay the price for our rebellion against Him. It is impossible. It is a burden that crushes us and we can never achieve the results we long for. Only once that had taken place, Jesus steps into human history and He declares, I have come to set the captives free. I have come to bring freedom. I have come to bring life. And for me to bring life, I will walk towards my death. And Jesus would hang on a cross and he would do it to appease the wrath of God, God's righteous anger towards rebellion, pain and sinfulness, to uphold justice, to pay the price we could never pay for our rebellion. He would willingly hang on a cross. And at the same time, he would defeat the enemies of God and any enemy that could once again enslave us. And three days later, he would rise in victory, declaring, I am who I say I am. And in that moment, he would win freedom for everyone who would believe and trust in him. And this is why Paul is contending so much. He's saying, don't, don't stop at the law, get to Jesus. And he's also saying, don't bring the law to Jesus. Leave the law where it is. That's where it belongs. It's done. It's no longer needed. We've graduated. We are now sons and daughters of God because of the finished work of Jesus. That's what Paul is contending for. That's what he's trying to make the Galatians understand. And the Judaizers who are there and trying to contend to add law to grace are missing it. They have completely missed it. And when Paul says they are like the children of Hagar, they are in slavery. And he speaks about the present Jerusalem, which is in slavery. That present Jerusalem is anyone who continues to trust in the law to be made right with God. That's the present Jerusalem. And that anyone who trusts in the law to be made right with God is still in slavery. And what he's saying to these Jewish opponents of his and brothers and sisters is incredibly controversial to them. We might not see it, but they would have seen it. Paul is saying to them, hey, if you continue to trust in the law, if you continue to trust in that for your salvation and your identity and to be made children of God and to be made right with God, if you continue to trust in that, you are more like the children of Hagar than you are the children of Sarah and Promise saying you're not even a part of the people of God. You've missed it entirely because the children of God are those born of promise and spirit through the finished work of God. Those are the true children of God. You are a part of the, you are born of the slave mother, the law, and you are not even part of the people of God. Incredibly controversial to say that their lineage is closer to Ishmael than Isaac. Because what they're contending for is the, the purest sons and daughters of God are those who descend from Isaac. And the best that a Gentile Christian can hope for is to trust in Jesus and add Torah and Jewish distinctives to their lives. And Paul's going, no. If you're born of promise and spirit, you are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And that heavenly Jerusalem is gonna be full of every tribe, tongue, and nation of all kinds of people who are true sons and daughters, not because they obeyed laws, rules, and regulations, but because they have been birthed by a miracle of the Spirit of God and the finished work of Jesus. Grace, undeserved. And so we see that on the table there, Hagar, Mount Sinai, present Jerusalem, in slavery with her children. The other woman or mother, Sarah, barren, that Isaiah reference, that the barren one who could only give birth through promise and spirit would give birth to the heavenly Jerusalem and children who are free. And what Paul is doing in this moment is he's challenging his Jewish opponents going, you've missed it. You've missed the person of Jesus and you've missed how God was gonna fulfill his promise to Abraham and you're trusting on something that's come to an end. And he's actually asking the Galatians a question. He's asking everyone a question. Which mother are you born of? Which mother are you born of? Are you born of the law or are you born of the promise of God and spirit of God? Who are you a child of? That's what what Paul is arguing. That's why Paul's so perplexed. At the beginning, he's going, I don't understand. Surely you're children of, of promise. Which is why Paul goes on to answer this question as he deals with two kinds of children, two children, there are two children. And as he asks this question and says, which mother are you born of? He answers it for the church in Galatians. He answers it for them. He says in verse 28, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. Verse 29, who was born according to the spirit. It's this beautiful moment where Paul goes, I was there. And we did this back in chapter three. I was there, I saw the work of God in you. Let me read from chapter three where he he says this. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying, I was there, I preached the gospel, you heard the gospel, and the reason your heart came alive to the gospel, the reason your eyes were open to the gospel, the reason your mind could finally declare Jesus is who He said He is, He's done what He said He could do, is because the Spirit of God was at work in you, birthing a child of promise, birthing a child of the Spirit, by grace, through the finished work of Jesus. And you put your faith in Him because God was doing something in your life. And he's like, I was there and I saw your heart change. I saw you come alive to God. I saw spiritual gifts poured out. I saw the Spirit at work. You are children of promise. You are children of the Spirit. Because that's who you are. Your mother is heavenly Jerusalem. Your mother is heavenly Jerusalem. And he's saying, why would you even let this teaching tempt you to swap out your mother? It would be like Nathan or Layla coming home from school and going, Mum, your snacks suck compared to them. Like, what's this like healthy stuff? 
That mother, your top deck, chocolate. I'm moving on. I'm choosing a new mother. And Paul's going, hey, I don't know what it is enticing. I don't know what they're saying to you that seems so enticing about that mother. But that lunch, that sugar, it's gonna kill you. It's gonna kill you. You're born of this mother. A mother of promise. A mother who could only give birth through the spirit and work of God. Goes on in verse 29. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And Paul kind of takes off his gloves as he takes the final swing at these Jewish brothers and sisters of him in in Galatians who are trying to convince his Christian brothers and sisters who have been born of the Spirit and promise to switch mothers And he says to them, you know, those people teaching you this nonsense are like, they're like Ishmael, the one born into slavery, who persecuted Isaac, the free one. If you go back into Genesis, you can see that Ishmael gave Isaac a pretty hard time. And what Paul is saying is to his Jewish opponents, is he's saying, you are closer to Ishmael, born of Hagar, persecuting the true sons and daughters of God than you are true sons and daughters of God. And it's a pointed point. And he really is saying that anyone who trusts in the law is not a true son or daughter of God. It is only those born of promise and spirit through the finished work of Jesus. Paul's cry, you are children of promise. Don't let the children of slavery bully you back into slavery. I don't know for you as Christ followers, this is Paul's cry for the Galatians church and 2,000 years later, it's the same cry for us who are Christ followers. We might not be dealing with Torah observance and we might not be dealing with circumcision as a distinctive of Jewish culture. But I don't know about you, in your Christian walk, I know that I sometimes have this voice in the back of my head. I think similar to that moment that Abraham and Sarah probably had when they wondered if God would come through on his promises, where you start to go, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? What does it mean that I don't get it right all the time? And if fear can creep into your walk with God, that drives you into a subtle form of legalism. I've got to do this. And we start to trust in human fleshly effort to be made right with God. And it's so subtle because you can take the very means of grace, things like prayer, silence and solitude, reading our word, Christian community, attending on Sunday, sitting under the word. You can take all these amazing, amazing means of grace and turn them into subtle forms of legalism. And how do you know you've done that? I would ask you a question. What does your Christian walk feel like? What does your Christian walk feel like? 
Does it feel heavy and burdensome and full of rules and regulations and failures that you're trying to atone for and a perf- seeking a perfection and an identity as a son and daughter of God under these, like a burden of, I've got to make this happen? Is it joyless? Is it full of fear and doubt? Or is it free? I'm loved. I'm known by God. I'm rescued. I'm redeemed. I'm justified. His Spirit has been poured out. I am free to come into the presence of God at any moment and enjoy the presence of God and be transformed by the living presence of His Spirit at work in my life. Is there a joy and a freedom and a lightness that oozes out of you as you live in the freedom and the goodness of the grace of God because He's fulfilled the promise in you and He's made you a son and daughter by His Spirit and His finished work? I think there's an encouragement to step out of slavery and law into the fullness of freedom of what it means to live in the presence of God. But there's also a warning for some of us. Because where some of us would feel legalism as a burden as we're so acutely aware of our shortcomings, the invitation there is to go freshly into the presence of God and just enjoy Him and let Him do the work He needs to do. Let go of your legalism. He's done it. It's finished. You're born of the Spirit. Go to Him. There's another group of us who I think are, our tendency is to maybe be a bit more like, hey, I'm doing quite well. I'm doing quite well. And the reason everybody else around me is a little bit grumpy or fearful is because they're, they're just not doing as well as I am. And man, if they, just, if they just applied a bit more willpower and discipline, they'd be a lot happier and God would be a lot happier with them. And the reason that things are going so wrong in everybody else's life is because they just don't have the levels of obedience to Jesus that I do. And there can be this judgmentalism and pride and the subtle criticism of people's failures rather than a gracious heart towards them. And Paul says to people with a hot attitude like that, you are more sons of Hagar than you are sons of promise. You are more daughters of Hagar than you are daughters of promise. And you might not even be a part of the people of God. Because you see what he's saying there to these Jewish opponents of his is he's saying, you are actually persecuting and putting burden on children of God that God himself doesn't put on them. Do you know the grace of God yourself? You see, when we understand what it is that Christ has done for us, our hearts are soft towards the shortcomings and failures of others because we realize how much we fail before God and others and how much we need the grace and goodness of God in our own life. What does it mean to live out of this place as children, as sons and daughters of promise? What does it mean for us to take what we know? So the the message is simply, don't go back to law, live in grace. And I really want every single one of us here to live in grace. But what does it mean for everybody around us to experience the grace you've experienced? What does it mean for your families outside these doors to experience the grace that you've experienced? What does it mean in your workplace for people to experience the grace that you've experienced in your schools? What does it mean for us to live this out 
as people of grace, as people of promise, of people of spirit, we should be inviting people into the most joyous spaces, being gentle with their failures and shortcomings and calling them to Jesus, the one who's done what they cannot do. And this is what Paul goes on to say, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul really is going, I'm, I'm done arguing. Those Jewish opponents who are saying, add law, add circumcision, I'm gonna let them know what happens to them if they continue down that road. Like Ishmael was cast out, they will be cast out. You see, technically Ishmael is the firstborn son of Abraham, so he should have inherited the promises of Abraham. But because he was born of human effort and he was born of a slave woman and born into slavery, God treats Isaac, the one born of spirit and promise, as the firstborn and says that the promises of God would be fulfilled through Isaac. And that's incredibly jarring and that's the pain that Abraham and Sarah caused when they took matters into their own hands and tried to fulfill the promises of God is that there would be a slave child born who would be cast out, not of the people of God. And what, Abraham, what Paul is doing is he's coming to this situation, he's saying, my Jewish brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters in that we, are, we have Jewish heritage. But if you continue down this road, that's where it ends and you will end up being cast out, not as brothers and sisters. Cast out of the people of God if you continue to trust in law and you don't trust in the promise of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I always feel at this point in the story of Genesis, Hagar and Ishmael are cast out, but God is incredibly gracious and kind to them and he births an entire nation out of them. But Paul's purpose is, as he uses this as an allegory, is to warn his Jewish opponents, don't go down that road. It doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to death, which is why Paul ends with these famous words. So brothers, speaking to those in Galatia, so brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he's saying as you contend for the gospel and the freedom that you have in the gospel, do not believe the lie that there is freedom in slavery. Stand firm. This is a famous Christian verse. You've seen it on every Christian mug. It's on memes, it's everywhere. It is for freedom that Christ has set me free. And we define that word freedom in the moment of whatever freedom we're longing for. But Paul has a very clear understanding of what he means by freedom. I take us back to, this is where we'll land. I take us back to that image of freedom that I had. And what's so wrong with that image of freedom is that it's all about the possibilities that stand before me and I get to make my own identity and I get to do my own things free from any restraint. The other problem with that image is I am all alone. <laughs> That version of freedom is often an incredibly selfish freedom that is all about me and who I want to become and how I want to become that. And actually, the lie of that freedom is it's actually bondage. Because what it is actually saying is, Ian, 
Build an identity for yourself. Find meaning for yourself. Make it happen. Dream a dream for your life and make it happen. And there is a real burden and toil to fighting for your own identity, finding your own purpose, trying to create a meaning for yourself. It is actually the burden of slavery. And actually, Paul's version of freedom that he's speaking about here is so much more like a Jewish family in World War II and a child is caught by Nazi police and ripped away from that family and taken to a concentration camp and told the lie, if you just toil in this concentration camp, one day you will find your freedom. Forget about your family. Forget about your father. Just work harder. And one day you will have an identity. And one day I may grant you your freedom. And this child labors and toils and works every day. And every day she, she or he spends in this concentration camp is a day that she forgets who her father is and where she belongs and loses her sense of identity as she toils and works and labors under a harsh and hard taskmaster. And Paul says what happens is one day the war is won. Jesus does what needs to be done. The war is won. And the image of freedom that Paul has here is closer to this child being lifted out of this camp, liberated from this camp, and carried back to their father. And there is this moment of homecoming where this child is embraced by the father, rescued and redeemed to the father, and they are now free to be a child of the father again. That's freedom. To be brought to a father who says, I have done what I promised I would do. And I pour out my spirit into you. And as I pour out my spirit into you, it testifies to you. It declares over your soul, you are my beloved son and daughter. You are mine. You are rescued and redeemed. And this is not a freedom free from restraint. It is a freedom where God says, now I'm gonna grow you. I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna disciple you. I'm gonna parent you to become who I always created you to be, a worshiper of me and a free son, a free daughter you're gonna become more like Christ. And we experience true freedom.